So before I begin here this evening, I'd like to uh, acknowledge, uh, uh, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge you uh, just for your practice and your willingness to show up again and again. And also for those unseen things, uh, forces, whether it's sometimes a, uh, it's like the deer out there that in a sense their mothers have taught them that it's safe to be around and the turkeys and even the uh, lizards. Uh, this uh, friendliness that is extended throughout this uh, valley itself. And so with that, I acknowledge the unseen forces that, uh, in a sense, grace us and also uh, are tamed, in a sense, by our practice here. So tonight... I again wrote you a poem to keep my mind, in a sense, um, focused or directed. And I named this uh, talk tonight just The Cognitive Heart. The mirror, unstained, reflecting, a spring day, frogs, Entering with great songs, thoughts, thinking, crows, calling, old wounds, calling, wonder of wonders. Ah, the the lunch line remembers, the septic pump sucking up the darkness. Remembering to invite that part that limps. Staggering under the weight. Determined to allow the movie star to embrace the cripple. Bringing the luminous to bear witness on the fire of the heart. So I began... I really felt that there were three parts to this this evening that I wanted to explore with you. And first is just the acknowledgement of this uh, luminous, perfected mind that, uh, like the sky, uh, holds all the many clouds of different shapes and forms and the things that always move through it. But it itself... Uh, is unmoved by the objects. And so there is this perfection, uh, this uh, luminous quality that is that that is the Buddha, uh, that that is uh, the deathless, unchanged, uh, unmoved. The mere un stained by the reflections. A spring day, frogs entering with great songs, thoughts thinking, crows calling, old wounds calling, wonder of wonders. 
our practice here uh, is in many ways the acknowledgement uh, of this Buddha, this uh, quality of essence that is something that's not necessarily outside us, but it's something that uh, we can begin to acknowledge uh, in moments uh, between thoughts, in places where the pause and uh, we don't grab the next object of experience, but we simply rest, we pause. One of the beauties here of slowing down is certainly the ability uh, to recognize uh, what's between the moments, what's between the objects that arise. And in a sense, reflect this sky, this blue sky of mind. We become so focused in a sense that we're trained, we have trained ourselves to only look at the clouds. And don them as real and not what holds it. There was a point where I was circumambulating where the Buddha had been uh, enlightened, a place Gaya. And as I was going around one day to circumambulate the, the uh, large sort of monument or stupa that's there, is there was a very tall Tibetan monk, uh, very large. Actually, he was uh, from Eastern Tibet, Kham. And he came around and he had, uh, he was probably six, seven or... <laughs> huge, and uh, he came from Eastern Bet, which are large, large people. And he had a four-year-old boy on his shoulder who was dressed up in all these monks' robes with shaved head, and there were four or five young, what they call tulkus, around him. And as I came around, uh, there was this, his name was uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, And over 20 years, I would consistently run into him. And in that uh, moment, I recognized that here was someone who, he was playing with these kids, and I kind of sat over the side and watched him play with these young tulkus. And the boy he had been carrying on his shoulders had actually been his teacher in his last life. And there was such a sense of ordinariness, uh, this being here, uh, this presence. 
And at the same time, there was a sense of unworldliness, uh, something that I later began to recognize was someone who, that our perspective usually is we look up at the clouds. And there are some beings that look from the sky down at the clouds. And over the years, I would sometimes, I would, um, several years I was living in Kathmandu and he had built a monastery there and he would come and he would teach Dharma without any top, and whether it was the middle of winter or however. And at first it was sort of, well, that's kind of bizarre. But in a sense that the nakedness of mind, the vulnerability, the exposure, uh, is part of this luminous mind. It is, uh, last night, Tara spoke of uh, fear and this sense of contraction and how it is uh, very much part of our body and mind and our uh, primal reaction. And I always imagine, because the Buddha uh, in the back there and uh, up here, well, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, there's a, the Buddha sits on this lotus flower. And it is uh, Don the throne of fearlessness. Uh, this place where there's that description, if you know, of Indra's net, where the net is has a jewel in each place where the net comes together. And it reflects every other place on the net. Any place that you are is a reflection of any other place. It is a place of non-separateness. This mind of connectedness. So we have this possibility Uh, Always, uh, in any moment, uh, either looking up at the sky and seeing the clouds and relating and getting caught, or noticing that uh, there is sky. It is vast and wide and open and is perfected in its own luminous nature. And this is Buddha. Uh, This is the place of refuge. There was another point where I had 
had actually disrobed. I was uh, been traveling in India for some time, and I went to live with a man by the name of Kalu Rinpoche, a Tibetan. And um, he lived in a little village near Darjeeling called Sonada. And I went there. And again, there was this recognition that there was, here was someone sitting who simply, uh, from where I was sitting, was a place of constant interpreting and holding the clouds in some uh, important way. But here was someone who was sitting to the side. And it gave me this deep sense of there's more here than what meets the eye that meets the smell, the taste, the hearing, the thoughts, the sensations. And it's not something to speculate about. It's something that's available, always here in present time. Wonder of wonders. Ah, but the lunch line remembers. The the septic pump sucking up the darkness. Remembering to invite that part that limps. Staggering under the weight, determined to allow the movie star, to embrace the cripple. So there's this recognition of, in a sense, the Buddha energy, the uh, qualities of awakening. But there is also a way that we have to hold, uh, in a sense, the relative, the world that we live with, the overflowing sewage that holds us sometimes, as we spoke about last night, the fear, uh, or times that the the wanting or the uh, the judgment or the inner critic that uh, looks out on the world and holds the world in captivity for periods of time. 
old wounds calling. I have the, the uh, really I feel like the privilege of teaching in January in uh, Sun Valley and uh, a little of my history is that uh, since you heard a little of it in my last talk, uh, at five and a half I was sent to boarding school in Switzerland in a small, small uh, ski resort before it was, uh, this was 1951, uh, before sort of movie stars showed up there. And it was a pristine place that truly gave me uh, a sense of the wonder of wonders uh, through the natural world. And there I could, in a sense, hold my aloneness uh, in the mountains. Uh, also, one of the sort of skills I learned was uh, being a downhill racer. And this Uh, pushing that edge of uh, where the body lives the fear, but the mind uh, disconnects and goes into a, for short periods of time, an extremely concentrated place. So it's, in a sense, been like my tribe. And so this last January, as I go up to Sun Valley and uh, to teach, is, uh, as uh, many of you know who are West Coast people, we had most amazing amount of snow in a very short period of time where we had a, probably a foot of snow every day for almost uh, 12 days. And I would go out every day, and being that uh, my mind can still uh, hold that kind of speed and concentration, my body cannot. (laughs) I think you know this. So I... Um, herniated a disc, uh, which caused uh, what is known as sciatica. And one of the things is that I am this practice sometimes. I and through other practices, I learned how to disengage somewhat from pain in my body that dissociation, that allowed me, uh, first of all, to, uh, in a sense, deny the pain, 
and then say, well, I can go and teach this five-day retreat in the Sawtooth Wilderness where we have to take uh, a cat uh, in through the snow into the Sawtooth Valley, which is phenomenally pristine. Uh, Silence every direction you look. Uh, A wonderful place to sit uh, out of this world, in a sense. Uh, We have cross-country skis and uh, snowshoes to go out for um, walking meditation. (laughs) You get it, the story. So, um, uh, two days after this, I have to fly. So I say, well, Thursday morning, I'll fly up. And uh, that gives me, it's always complicated getting there simply because of uh, January and weather. So I go with the sciatica, which is um, the first night, just is tearing me apart. And I try, oh, I try Vicodin, and I, which puts me to sleep. But because the body needs to hear itself when it's that kind of pain, that I woke up in tears and I had to crawl up and down for, maybe I slept three hours, up and down the floor until uh, there was some reducing of the pain. And this warrior quality saying, okay, you know, you just get on that plane, go up there and uh, teach. And I never even thought, not to do that. (laughs) Well, it happens to be that I fly out of Reno, uh, the Tahoe Airport, uh, Reno-Tahoe Airport, and there was fog. Uh, I drove down at uh, 4.30 or something in the morning, and there's a thing called fog snow. And so up on the mountain, it was absolutely clear, and I went down into the fog in Reno, and it was snowing. That uh, in Reno. And they said, oh, Salt Lake City was just like that. So I spent the day, and I couldn't sit down because the pain in my left butt was so strong that uh, there was no way I could sit down. So I would stand and hold and walk, and this, uh, so there were four cancellations that day until that night. And uh, then they said, well, we'll fly you to Seattle, and then you can fly in. So I went and stayed at one of the casinos that night and went to the, uh, the next morning, went and got canceled to Seattle. Then I had to fly to Oakland, and then I finally got there in terrible distress, in this incredible pain. And at some point, there was uh, this turning of my mind. And that turning of mind was uh, this place between uh, the resistance and the, uh, the teaching. The teacher itself had come to visit. So I began the retreat 
and I could sit on a bench. And I could sleep one hour, and then I would have to get up every hour. And I would walk for ten minutes, and then I could go back to bed, and then I would get up and walk every hour. And it was difficult first for concentration, because usually I have good concentration, but it made it difficult. But what what really began to happen is there began this uh, process of uh, kind of the uh, this pumping out of the darkness. That in a sense, what's going on here for all of you when there's those times that we get captured and we get held in our trances, that uh, uh, it can be that that pulls you down. Or it can be the teacher that liberates, uh, that brings that uh, vulnerability to the heart. This is from Anne Moreau Linderberg, from War Within and Without. Go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide. And you must be open as a vessel lying on the beach, letting it fill you up and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. With a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain. One reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain, as though the pain were not yours but your body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar. Oh, I've had uh, typhoid fever, dengue fever, uh, dysentery probably for 12 or 15 years. Um, But there was always the sense of resistance, always this thing of somehow there was uh, some kind of sense of hope or getting through it. But what I'm talking here about here is not hope. It's this willingness uh, wherever, whether it's in some old, some physical pain, some, some story, some old wound that uh, reappears out of the closet uh, that you have spent a fortune on in therapy. <laughs> and it revisits here. 
is it doing? Uh, there is a skillful way of allowing and this transparency of being that no matter how powerful and how strong it is, there is this tremendous capacity as a human being to let it break, to crack your heart open. To actually make what's invisible, visible. And I spoke in the luminosity part about this Indra's net, this part that is that that connects all things. And it comes not as some transcendent thing. It comes as, in a sense, the sacrificial laying the body on the funeral fire, laying your hopes on the funeral fire, laying your old stories on the funeral fire. They come unbidded here. But they don't, in a sense, come out of nowhere. They come because of causes and conditions. And we can either wrestle with them, turn away from them, or sometimes even uh, attempt uh, to hold the breath or hold some other state of being. Uh, that come here. But ultimately, this bringing this luminous mind to bear witness to the fire of the heart, bringing this luminous mind to bear witness to the fire of the heart, So the magnitude of your pain or your suffering that is here as uh, a gift, uh, yes, unbidded,
but it teaches. Uh, it teaches about the clouds. It teaches about the relative. It teaches about that that brings the fire to awakening. Uh, you cannot separate them out. It's what allows the luminous to be ordinary. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. Ojibwa Indians. Being carried on great winds across the sky. These things I put around me are like little Dharma cards. <laughs> and sometimes they get shuffled to appear and sometimes they don't ever appear. <laughs> but I would like to share. This is from Arthur Miller after the fall. It speaks to this. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread and the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. Within a week you're climbing over corpses of children bombed in a subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child. And even in the dream, I saw it was my life. And it was an idiot. And I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again clutching at my clothes until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face and it was horrible. But I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's own life in one's own arms.
it's natural to want to resist. It is really the love you have for yourself. But there can be a skillful and unskillful way. And the practice here of mindfulness is this not missing a moment. Uh, The preciousness of whatever has been given to you at this time. In Sun Valley, uh, about the third day, I finally, this morning, when uh, uh, Mark was talking about that finally there was enough concentration where uh, the pain went in half. And finally, when there was enough concentration, the pain was in half. And there was a part that rejoiced. But like all things, it didn't last. And I returned. Letting the waves Teach that there is that part of me that wants to resist, wants to fight, wants to be a warrior. Uh, wants to say, I'm more than that pain. And then there is the practice of acknowledging and softening and allowing this non-separateness to teach, to friend. This is Nosho Ken Rinpoche. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara.
the pounding waves of the infinite ocean of samsara. So, to end, I will just say how I held these three pieces. The first one was simply this practice of taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in this awakened state that is your birthright. There is this dharma, the truth of the one side, the relative, the form, the body. Uh, this being born, being here, and dying. And there is the formless, that that is untouched, is this mirror that holds all things. These are the teachings. And there is taking refuge in Sangha, which is when these teachings Uh, the unmanifest and the manifest uh, come together in human being. So I'll end again just to read this poem. The mirror unstained Reflecting a spring day, frogs entering with great songs, thoughts thinking, crows cawing, old wounds calling, wonder of wonders. Ah, but the lunch line remembers the septic pump sucking up the darkness remembering to invite that part that limps, staggering under the weight, determined to allow the movie star to embrace the cripple, bringing the luminous to bear witness to the fire of the heart. So let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 8, 2005. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.